Welcome to the Perfect Puzzle. Thank you for joining me. I'm going to start right off the bat here, right up before I even jump into anything, that this is going to be a long study. I don't know exactly how long. I'm thinking 45 minutes to maybe even an hour because I've got a lot to cover and I want to get it all covered in one session. I hope you will understand that and hopefully you will as we get into the study itself. But first, I want to start with a word of prayer. Father, I ask your Holy Spirit to enable me to teach, Lord. As we embark upon a series of studies that I, with some trepidation, am entering into, I trust that the listeners will listen with an open heart, mind, body, soul, and spirit, Lord. I ask you to open them up for your word, and to help me teach the things that I believe you want taught. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I had told you, I think, in some of the previous studies we've done, some of the previous sessions, I was going to start the book of James for our next series of studies. Uh, It's been a change in plans. Over the past few weeks, I've learned a painful truth behind an old joke. It goes like this. Do you want to know how to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. You know, God didn't so much laugh as he said, uh, no. James can wait. There are more important things to do. Uh, Those important things will be what we're going to study together over the coming few weeks. And I truly mean together because a lot of this is new to me too. But first, I want to talk about take a few minutes to talk about an issue I think is important before we move forward. Because with some of my more recent sessions, you may be thinking that I've switched from teaching to preaching. Nothing could be further from the truth. I haven't. But if anything I've said has offended you in some way, then I assure you it was not my intent. My intent was, is, and always will be to encourage you to think about your faith. Consider what you believe. Make changes where you find changes are needed. I will always encourage you to check out what I teach. Even if I don't speak it, I do welcome it. You know, and contact me whenever you think I'm mistaken. My email address uh, is on the uh, Spotify information about this podcast. Uh, I am welcome to criticism or discussion or whatever you want to tell me. I'm always going to try to ensure there's something you're hearing from me that is probably going to be new to you for the first time. But that has never been more true than what we're about to be getting into. I don't have any delusions about what I teach because I care deeply about the Bible. Sometimes I may ask you to change your views on Scripture because I at times change my views and I I'm always going to require you to actually look at the text closely and there's a reason for that it's because I believe when our church doctrine when church doctrine develops is based on a tradition and that tradition then slowly forms the basis of our faith and then it gets reinforced from the pulpit, from the ambo, 
Sunday school classroom throughout the years. It be, it, that tradition then can become a lens through which every verse of the Bible we read gets filtered. And then the lens is revered by everyone they ever went to church with. But the problem is, when you do that, is that the lens can get confused with the Bible itself. Then you have somebody like me comes along and tells people that the Bible can speak for itself, that you don't need that lens, or more aggressively, or if I tell you that the lens is man-made, and it's extra-biblical, it's not found in the Bible, and that in order to believe that you're going to have to, at times, give up everything you've framed and built your understanding on. It's always going to inevitably you're always going to inevitably experience a deep and dreadful discomfort, even if you eventually accept what I said. Even the most rational, reasonable, and emotionally stable person on the planet will feel a threatening discomfort when they're given a set of facts that contradict a previously held system of belief. It's called cognitive dissonance, and it's one of the most powerful emotional forces in human experience. People will get defensive, angry, deeply sad, or withdraw completely to avoid feeling it. If you add divine implications to the dissonance, it becomes an order of magnitude more powerful. It's like the analogy of an ancient building that over the years has accrued more and more scaffolding out of fear that it may fall over. Whenever someone suggests removing the scaffolding in order to better appreciate the beauty of its architecture, some people inevitably panic, thinking that the building is going to fall over. So I understand that looking at the Bible really closely can make you uncomfortable. But guess what? That is exactly what is supposed to happen. But I want to tell you what you, we cannot do. We cannot begin to summarily dismiss, or worse yet, mischaracterize a point of view that may be thoroughly biblical without doing our homework, just because it offends our sensibilities, or better yet, our tradition. And this is where debating issues can go really bad really fast. What I mean by that is this. Let me give you a quote from Dr. Michael Heiser's blog on this very issue. Quote, if someone really wants to learn something, they'll study and do research. They won't be content to be entertained. But debates become a substitute for study. Then those debates then become academic blood sport, entertainment for both sides that allows both sides to avoid the hard work of studying. I'm not an entertainer. If you want to know what I think and why I think it, Read what I write and listen to what I say. If you still want entertainment from me, get used to disappointment. Don't be lazy. Dr. Heiser then goes on to say, I will not spend my time shooting at other Christians. I care only that the clarity of the gospel is present when I listen to or read other Christians. If it isn't there, I move on. Beyond that, I care only for what the biblical text can exegetically sustain on all other matters. I don't care about anyone's views of creation, end times, election, tongues, 
and so on. I care about what the Bible says. I want people to stop parroting the views of their traditions and get their noses back to the biblical text and read that text in its own context, not some post-biblical context or tradition. If it irritates you that I don't have the gift of indignation, that I don't have the gift of indignation, I don't want to have a ministry that fights other believers, go somewhere else. You know, again, I'm not here to entertain any of you. I'm here to help you become a better reader and student of Scripture. I'm here to help people see whether their views are possible and perhaps plausible or not. I'm not here to tell people what to believe. I'm not here to gain followers. There are other ministries that do that, and I'll just let them do it. That may sound sarcastic, but it's sadly true. And it really is that simple. End quote. You know, I couldn't have said that better myself because I agree with everything Dr. Heiser said. Because we're about to get into a subject that to me has recently become very evident and will probably cause some, of, some or all of you to change what you believe about the Bible. Now first of all I have a question for you. Do you really believe what the Bible says? It may sound like an odd question to ask about a book likely to be read mostly by Christians. I don't think it's so odd. The Bible has some pretty strange things in it. Things that are hard to believe, especially in the modern world. I'm not talking about big stuff, like whether Jesus was God come to earth, who then died on the cross and rose from the dead. I'm not even thinking of miracle stories like the Exodus when God rescued Israel from Egypt by making a way for them through the Red Sea. Most Christians would say they believe those things. After all, if you don't believe in God and Jesus or that they could do miraculous things, what's the point of saying you're a Christian? I'm talking about the little known supernatural stuff you run into occasionally when you're reading the Bible, but you rarely, if ever, hear about it in a church. I'll give you an example. In 1 Kings chapter 22, there's a story about a wicked king of Israel named Ahab. He wants to join forces with the king of Judah to attack an enemy at a place called Ramoth-Gilead. Judah's king wants a glimpse into the future. Now he wants to know what's going to happen if they attack. So the two kings ask Ahab's prophets and they get a thumbs up all around. The prophets, those prophets are just telling Ahab what he wants to hear, and both kings know it. So they decide to ask God's prophet, a fellow named Micaiah, what he says. But what he says isn't good news for Ahab, because he says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand, and on his left. And the Lord said, who will, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said, By what means? And he said, I will go out 
and will be a lying spirit, spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. That's 1 Kings chapter 22 verses 19 to 23. But did you catch what the Bible's asking you to believe there? That God meets with a group of spirit beings to decide what happens on earth. Is that for real? Here's another example courtesy of Jude. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper, proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That's Jude 1 verse 6. God sent a bunch of angels to an underground prison? Really? Yeah, the Bible has a lot of strange things in it especially about the unseen spiritual world. I've met a lot of Christians who have no trouble with the Bible's less controversial, at least among Christians, teaching about supernatural, such as who Jesus was and what he did. But passages like I just read tend to make them just a little uneasy. So they ignore them. So they, they ignore things such as, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. That's First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. You know, as a Bible student, I've learned that strange passages and a lot of other little known and little understood parts of Scripture are actually very important. They teach specific ideas about God, the unseen world, and our own lives. And believe it or not, if we were aware of them and understood what they meant, as difficult and puzzling as they are, it would change the way we think about God, change the way we think about each other why we're here and our ultimate destiny. In the first letter the, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Paul got upset at how believers in that, in that church were taking each other to court to settle their disputes. It was a waste of time and emotional energy. Paul felt as well as a negative reflection on the faith. You know, he says, don't you people know you're going to judge the world? Don't you know you're going to rule over angels? That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. Judge the world? Christians are going to rule over angels? Now what Paul's talking about in that verse is both mind-blowing and life-changing. The Bible connects the activities of supernatural beings with our lives and destinies. We will one someday judge the world. We will rule over angels, just like Paul said. But we're going to talk more about that later. Now, the reason Paul can say what he said to the Corinthians and to us is that the story of the Bible is about how God created us and desires that we be part of his heavenly family. It's no accident that the Bible uses terms that are drawn from family relationships, such as sharing a home, working together, 
could collectively describe God, Jesus, or the beings of the unseen world. And believers, you and me, God wants humanity to be part of his family and of his rule over creation. You know, we all know the concept as in heaven, so on earth. It's drawn from ideas and even phrasing that's found in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. From the very beginning, God wanted his human family to live with him in a perfect world, along with the family he already had in the unseen world, which are his heavenly host. That story, God's goal, its opposition by the powers of darkness, its failure, and its ultimate future success, is what the Bible is about. And we can't appreciate the drama of the Bible story if we don't include all the actors, including the supernatural characters who are part of the epic, but who are ignored by many Bible teachers. You know, the members of God's heavenly host are not peripheral or insignificant or unrelated to our story, the human story, and the Bible. They play a, play a central role. But modern Bible readers too often just read right past without grasping them. They go right past the fascinating ways the supernatural world is present in dozens of the most familiar episodes in the Bible. You know, it's taken me decades to see what I now see in the Bible. And I want to share with you the fruit of all those years of study. But let's not lose track of the question that I asked at the beginning. Do you really believe what the Bible says? Because let's face it, that's where the rubber meets the road. It won't do any bit of good to learn about the, what the Bible says about the unseen world and how it intersects with your life if you don't believe it. You know, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 to 23, the prophet Elisha is in trouble, and he's in trouble again. An angry king sends troops to surround his house. When his servant panics, Elisha tells him, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. But before the servant can object, Elisha prays, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And God answers on the spot. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And Elisha's prayer is my prayer for you. May God open your eyes to see, so that you'll never be able to think about the Bible the same way again. You know, people are fascinated by the supernatural and the superhuman. Just think about the entertainment industry in the last 10 to 20 years. Thousands of books, television shows, movies in the past 20, 30 years have been about angels, aliens, monsters, demons, ghosts, witches, magic, vampires, werewolves, and superheroes. You know, many Hollywood's blockbuster franchises feature the supernatural, the X-Men. The Avengers, the Harry Potter series, Superman, and then the Twilight Saga. You have television shows like Fringe, Supernatural, X-Files. These shows have dedicated followings long after filming new episodes ends. And really when you stop to think about it, haven't those things always been popular? In stories, in books, and in art? Why is that? 
Well, one answer is they are an escape from the ordinary. They offer us a world that's more interesting and exciting than our own. There's something about good versus evil, magnified on a cosmic scale, that thrills us. The epic struggle by the heroes of Middle-earth, you know, Gandalf, Frodo, and company, struggling against the Dark Lord Sauron in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Those books and movies have captivated re readers, you know, for over half a century now. The more otherworldly the villain, the more spectacular the triumph. On another level, people are drawn to other worlds because, as the book of Ecclesiastes puts it in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has put eternity into our hearts. You know, there's something about the human condition that longs for something beyond human experience, something divine. The Apostle Paul wrote about this yearning too. He taught that it comes from just being alive in the world God has made. The creation bears witness to a creator and therefore to a realm beyond our own. Now, Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 1. In fact, Paul said this impulse was so powerful that it had to be willfully suppressed in Romans chapter 1 verse 18. And yet, for some reason, we don't seem to think of the epic story of the Bible in the same way we think of our own tales of the supernatural in books, movies, and legend. Now, there are reasons for that, and they go beyond the lack of special effects. For some, the Bible's characters are just too ordinary or grandfatherly. They don't feel dynamic or heroic after all. These are the same people, the same stories we've been hearing since Sunday school when we were kids. Then there's a cultural barrier. It's hard for us to identify with what seems like an endless parade of ancient shepherds and men wearing robes. Well, like so many actors in our church's nativity plays. But I think an even bigger factor in why science fiction or supernatural fantasy captures our imagination more easily is how we've been taught to think about the unseen world of the Bible. You know, what I've heard in church over the years doesn't just miss the boat. It actually makes the supernatural boring. And even worse, the church's teaching emasculates the unseen supernatural world, rendering it powerless. A lot of what people's, people, oh, excuse me, a lot of what Christians imagine to be true about the unseen world isn't true. Angels don't have wings. Cherubim don't count because cherubim are never called angels. And they're creatures. Angels are always in human form. Demons don't sport horns and a tail. And they aren't here to make us sin. You know, we sin just fine all by ourselves. And while the Bible describes demonic possession in rightfully awful ways, intelligent evil has more sinister things to do than make sock puppets out of people. But on top of that, angels and demons are minor players. Churches, churches just somehow never seem to get, get to the big boys in their agenda. You know, the Bible says God has a task force of divine beings who carry out his decisions. You know, it's, it's referred to 
as God's assembly, God's council, or God's court. That's in Psalm chapter 89. You can also read about it in Daniel chapter 7. One of the most clear verses about it is Psalm 82 verse 1. The Good News translation puts it this way. God presides in the heavenly, heavenly council. In the assembly of gods, he gives his decision. And if you think about it, that's a starting verse. That's startling. But what the verse means is what it plainly and simply says. But like any verse, Psalm 82.1 has to be understood in the context of what else the Bible says. In this case, what it says about the gods, little g, and how that term should be defined. As you probably well know, the original Hebrew word translated gods, G-O-D-S, is Elohim, E-L-O-H-I-M. Now many of us have thought of Elohim for so long in just one single sense as one of the names of God the Father. It may be hard for you to think of it in its wider meaning. But the word actually refers to any inhabitant of the unseen spiritual world. That's why you're going to find it used of God himself in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. You're going to find it used of demons in Deuteronomy 32.17. You're going to find it used of human dead in the afterlife in 1 Samuel 28.13. Because for the Bible, any disembodied being whose home address is the spirit world is in Elohim. The Hebrew term doesn't refer to a specific set of abilities only God has. The Bible distinguishes God, capital G, from all other gods, lowercase g, in other ways, but not by using the word Elohim. For instance, the Bible commands the gods to worship the God of the Bible in Psalm 29.1. It says, Honor the Lord, you heavenly beings. Honor the Lord for his glory and strength. He is their creator and king. Psalm 95, Psalm 148. Psalm 89, verses 6 and 7 say, No one in heaven is like you, Lord. None of the heavenly beings is your equal. 1 Kings 8.23 Psalm 97.9 You are feared in the council of the holy ones. Now the Bible writers are pretty blunt about the God of Israel having no equal. He is the God of gods in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 17 and in Psalm 136 verse 2. Now these beings in the council of the holy ones, they're real. Now, earlier I read a passage in which God met with his heavenly host to decide how to get rid of King Ahab. In that passage, the members of this heavenly group were called spirits. If we believe the spirit world is real and is inhabited by God and by spiritual beings that he has created, such as angels, we have to admit that God's supernatural task force, described in the verses I've quoted above and many others, is also real. Otherwise, you're just paying mere lip service to spiritual reality. And since the Bible identifies these divine council members as spirits, we know the gods aren't just idols of stone or wood. 
statues don't work for God in a heavenly council. Now it's true that people in the ancient world who worshipped the rival gods, they did make idols. But they knew the idols they made with their own hands weren't the real powers. Let's face it, they weren't stupid. Those handcrafted idols were just objects their gods could inhabit to receive sacrifices and dispense knowledge to their followers, to the followers who performed rituals to solicit the gods to come to them and take up residence in the idol. Now the gods of Psalm 82 verse 1 are called sons of the Most High God. Later in the psalm in verse 6. Psalm 82, verse 6. Now the, son, the term sons of God appears several times in the Bible, usually in God's presence, as in Job chapter 1, verse 6, Job chapter 2, verse 1. Job 38, 7 tells us they were around before God began to fashion the earth and create humanity. And that's very interesting. God calls these spiritual beings his sons. Notice he doesn't say only begotten son. There's only one of those in the Godhead. That's Jesus Christ. But since he created them, these spiritual beings that called the sons of God over in Job, the family language makes sense. In the same way you refer to your children as, as your son or daughter because you participated in their creation. But besides being their father, God is also their king. In the ancient world, kings often ruled through their extended families. Kingship was passed on to their heirs. Dominion was a family business. God is lord of his council. And his sons have the next highest rank by virtue of their relationship with him. But as we'll discuss throughout these studies, something happened. Some of them became disloyal. You know, sons of God are also decision makers. We know from 1 Kings 22 and many other passages that God's business involves interacting with human history. When God decided it was time for wicked Ahab to die, he left it up to his council to decide how that would happen. Now the divine council meetings in Psalm 82 and 1 Kings 22 are not the only ones related to us in the Bible. A couple of them determine the fate of empires. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was punished by God with temporary insanity. That sentence was handed down by the decree of the Most High, Daniel 4.24, and the decree of the watchers, Daniel 4.17. Watchers is a term used for divine beings of God's counsel. It refers to how they were ever watchful over the affairs of humanity. They never slept. These biblical scenes of divine counsel sessions tell us God's council members participate in God's rule. In at least some cases, God decrees what he wants done, but gives a supernatural agent freedom to decide the means for, for how it gets done. Now, angels participate in God's counsel as well. In the original languages of the Bible, 
you know, the terms translated angel in the Old and New Testaments, those words actually mean messenger. And then, the, which means that the word angel is basically a job description. Angels deliver messages to people. And we're going to learn more about angels and their duties as well as the other duties of God's council members later. Now, your reaction to everything that I've said up to this point may be something like, that's fascinating stuff. I've never seen that in the Bible. But what implications does all this information have, if any at all, for my daily life and the way my church functions? And the answer to that question is, the truths presented have everything to do with our understanding of who God is and how we relate to him and what our purpose is on earth. Now, this lesson we've discussed how the Bible des describes God's cosmic administration and what insights those descriptions give us into God and ultimately how God relates to us. First, God's heavenly family business is a template for how he relates to his earthly family. We're going to discuss that further later, but here's an example. Because you might be wondering why did God need a council anyway because God shouldn't need help doing anything even in the spiritual world because let's face it he's God but the Bible is clear <coughs> excuse me that he uses lesser beings to get things done you know he doesn't need a divine council but he chooses to make use of one but he doesn't need us either you know if he wanted to, God could just speak out loud to all the people who need the gospel. Gospel, Give everyone all the encouragement they need to turn to him. And he could call that good. He could persuade people to love others by putting his voice into their heads. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he uses people. You and me to get the job done. Secondly, God could just predetermine events to make sure everything turns out the way he wants it to. But he doesn't. In the story of King Ahab, God let his heavenly assistants decide how to carry out his will. In other words, he let them use their free will. Now that tells us not everything is predetermined. And that's true not only in the unseen world, it's also true in our world. See, in the Bible, the unseen world has structure. God is CEO. Those who work for him are his family. They share dominion. They participate in how the company runs. Amazingly enough, the Bible talks the same way about humanity. From the very beginning in Eden, God created humanity to rule the earth with him. God told Adam and Eve, have many children so that your descendants will live all over the earth and bring it under their control. Adam and Eve are the children of God. They're God's earthly family. God wanted to live with them and let them participate in making the whole world like Eden. Now that's a familiar concept to most readers. What isn't so apparent is that Adam and Eve were not the only members of God's family in Eden. His divine family was also there. Eden was where God lived. 
And where God lives, so does his family. Yeah, we think of heaven as a place where we'll live with God and, and his angels, his divine family. Now that's the way it was originally intended to be, and it's the way it will be. You know, it's no con coincidence that the Bible ends with heaven come back to earth in a new global Eden in Revelation, Revelation chapters 21 and 22. To understand our destiny, we need to go back in time when God's two families occupied the same space. We need to go back to the garden. Now, surveys taken within the last 10, 20 years show that three-fourths of Americans believe in the supernatural world of God and angels. Three-fourths, 75%. Christians hardly embrace the concept of the supernatural, presuming that the Bible's description of spirits, demons, and miracles must be true in order for scripture to have any consistent meaning. But we do face a challenge. Our modern Western Christian culture seems content with an approach to the Bible which tends to tame or quiet its supernatural element. Think of the story of Noah and the ark with its pairs of animals streaming to the boat. Every child can picture that. But it's not so easy to recall the odd event which which led up to let it led up to it. You know, most ministers are tempted to skip over the sons of God marrying the daughters of men in Genesis chapter six, verses one through four. You know, whatever that means. They're hoping to get to the more sensible story of the flood. And as a result, what the writer wanted to accomplish may be lost because we're so uncomfortable with what appears to be a supernatural movement moment in, in the story. Now, we can only imagine how this harms the meaning of the Bible on a larger scale. Now, I'm going to challenge your thinking concerning supernatural worlds of the Bible. At the heart of this challenge is a simple question, which sets in motion everything that is to follow. Are the gods, little g, of the first commandment, which says, You shall have no other gods before me? Are those gods real personal beings? Now, for whatever reason, most readers of the Bible have not given this question serious consideration. You may have never thought it to be a question at, at all. Regardless, consider the series of teaching we're about to embark on as a unique opportunity to experience the Bible with the view that gods actively live in the heavens and function as gods do, little g. The challenge is going to be fascinating, it's going to be enjoyable. It's going to result in a deep appreciation for the full story of scripture. That's what I truly believe. Now, a quick illustration may help get us going. Imagine, if you will, a wife overhearing her husband talking on the phone. She first gets suspicious. Then she becomes jealous because she's hearing him share intimate conversation. Finally, she's had enough and she grabs the phone to confront the, whoever it is her husband's talking to. But to her surprise, there's no one there. He's been talking to a dial tone. For those of you who remember what a dial tone is, 
Well, with that picture in your head, consider what God meant in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is verses 14 and 15. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Would the Israelites have been tempted to worship what only amounted to a dial tone? Or would they have faced temptation to worship real gods in Canaan or Palestine? I prefer to call that area of geography Israel. You can call it what you want. To challenge and accept the reality of God's so liturgy begins with demystifying the concept. You know, we have to go back to the Hebrew and Greek, which is the original languages of the Bible, because English simply doesn't do it. Again, the most common word in the Old Testament for God is Elohim, and it appears, you know, just about 6,200 times. Now we come upon this word immediately in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. The Bible opens with a clear and certain claim that one Elohim created the entire universe. But you really need to look deeper. Who or what is an Elohim? You know, like I said earlier, it's a broad title. It can be translated as God, capital G, God, little g, Godhead, little g, spirit, deity, divine being, can even mean strong one. But each option carries its own theological agenda. Now, variations of the word appear in languages throughout the ancient Near East, which suggests that the word Elohim and its meaning was borrowed from other societies that came before Israel and Moses. Other nations talked about their Elohim all the time, often in very loving and appreciative tones. Like our word dad, which we use as a title for the man we know and honor, people in the Bible and other pagan cultures speak about their Elohim, or the Elohim of my father, of my fathers, the Elohim of, of my land, and they speak about it with regularity. So again, how do you know where the word Elohim appears in an English Bible? Well, generally you can follow this rule. When you see the word God, capital G, or lowercase g, or the word God's plural, lowercase g, in your Old Testament, you can be confident that the original reads Elohim, which is easy enough. The challenge begins to decide whether it's a capital G or a lowercase g. I'm going to get, give you more details later, but for now, just remember, when I speak of God, capital G, or God's lowercase g, in the Old Testament, I'm talking about the single Hebrew word Elohim. In the New Testament, the Greek word for, for it is theos, T-H-E-O-S. Now, does this prove that the gods of the first commandment are real? No, there's a lot 
more work that we have to do. But the very fact that God and God, lower, uppercase and lowercase, are the same word in Hebrew or Greek, should lead us to presume the reality of each Elohim or Theos until we discover evidence otherwise. Now Jesus encouraged us to pray, may your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Now, this sounds like God's will has already been accomplished in a heavenly or spiritual world before being accomplished in our own. Could it be Jesus knew that a society of spirits existed above us, actively engaged in doing God's will? Yeah, kind of seems so. It's just this kind of text we're going to be looking at throughout our study. Texts which give us reason to appreciate the reality of the spirit world and the society that they likely enjoy. As you read the references, notice that some of the quietest narratives in the Bible depend on spirits functioning as a society among themselves before affecting human beings on, on earth. Now, it would be helpful to confront a common question before I get any further into our study. And that question is, what is an angel? especially in relation to a God. Most people believe these words refer to very different things, causing them to say, you know, I can believe in angels, but I cannot believe in gods, little g. It's here that a large-scale change needs to be made with regard to how we think of angels. For example, Psalm 97.7 says, Worship him, all you Elohim, which demands that the gods worship their creator, the God of Israel. When the New Testament quotes this verse in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, the writer says it this way, Let all the angels of God worship him. Now where Elohim or gods appear in Psalm 97, the word is angels in Hebrews 1. Which very simply, you know, it means we find that angels are gods, and gods can sometimes function as angels. And I'm going to give you more on that later. Now here's the thing. I'll tell you a story. Henry Ford was famous for his automobile assembly line, but behind the scenes he he depended heavily on the mechanical engineering skills of his friend Charles Steinmetz. On one occasion, Ford's assembly line ground to a halt for reasons no one could understand. In a panic, Ford asked Steinmetz to see if he could make the necessary repairs. Now, Steinmetz was happy to help his friend. It wasn't long before the assembly line was up and running. Ford was ple pleased, of course, until he looked at the bill. Steinmetz wanted $10,000. Charles, you can't be serious, Ford complained. You tinkered in there for about 10 minutes. Uh, you're right, Steinmetz admitted. I, I did make a mistake. So he took the bill, pulled out his pen, changed the, the bill to tinkering $10, knowing where to tinker $9,990. That story reminds me of a challenge in understanding the Bible. We make an adjustment here. We make an interpretive move there. Sometimes the changes we make are large, but more often they're small. 
as we make adjustments to our interpretations, we try to keep track of how the Bible reads differently, hopefully more clearly, when applying one change and possibly doing away with another. It's kind of like test driving a car. We read the Bible hoping someday with time and care in the process of making trial runs with its multiple dead ends and periodic successes, we'll eventually experience a smooth running story of scripture that hugs every curve and climbs every hill with ease. I want you to think about the challenge that awaits you. I am proposing what is actually a very small change. A small tinkering with the text, if you will but one which will likely have far-reaching results. Do other gods exist? What would the Bible sound like if they did? Thank you for this session. Until next time, it's the perfect puzzle.